wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For my soul to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a special Lenten edition of Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleeder on this Tuesday of Holy Week, and we are blessed to be with you, along with the special guest in studio, Drew Blazik. We'll introduce very shortly, but folks, we're in Holy Week, the holiest week of the year. And um, if you're like us, maybe faithful Catholic, cradle Catholic, this is how many ever times around for you as years you have. You approach Holy Week and maybe you kind of ask the question, you know, what's truly in the depths? What's the big deal? What difference is this in my life that Jesus did? You would never say that aloud, of course. But we have crosses on our wall and we'll go to the services and, you know, we'll, we'll do our best, if you will, to be reverent. We'll be good soldiers, but maybe and it would be an honest thing, by the way, to do this, to say, Lord, in the depths of my heart, what's different this year? You know, how am I going to be different as a result of how I open my heart and mind to you? What difference did your suffering and death 2000 years ago make in my life, make in my marriage, make in my family? Of course, we know that the grace is being poured out this week, and we want to do our best tonight in this next hour to kind of open the door and maybe consider Christ's real presence, his real power. He wants to reach down from heaven all the more, all the time, and reach us. Um, and I just want to maybe begin with this second reading from Colossians, which one of the masses will, uh, will be reading. Um, so it's from uh, Colossians 3. Brothers and sisters... If then you were raised with Christ, seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of what is above, not of what is on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, folks, um, you get the parallel here of above and below. And maybe there's an insight there to go through tonight into the door and consider what are the things that are above? Are we not mired by the demands of below, the logistics, right? Paying the bills, family, get the kids here and there. All legitimate, uh, important things. And God is in all that for sure. But are we looking that through that from the lens of above? Are we looking at our lives from the lens of above and understanding the meaning and purpose of this this earthly plane? And um, is it edified by Holy Week, the suffering of Christ that he's about to partake of? And maybe another thing to think of tonight, um, and then we'll say a little prayer, is the word passion. We hear that a lot, don't we? Um, passion refers often to unbridled love, is the way the modern world would regard it. Or some people will say, I'm passionate about fill in the blank, this cause or that cause. All of them share this common feature, though. All uses of the word share the common sense of being without, being without something, and being directed toward that which will fulfill it. 
So the passion of the cross is the great poverty in need of God's great provision. The passion of the cross is the great poverty, all of our poverty, our human poverty due to sin, in pursuit of God's magnificent provision. Tonight, folks, God wants us to meet him in that place of awareness of our poverty. To be honest and look in the mirror and recognize where do we feel poverty? Where are we aware of our poverty, emotional, spiritual, in our imaginations, in our memories, in our thoughts? Are we aware of our poverty so that we can be drawn toward and into the passion of Christ who is our fulfillment? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment right now is sacred. It is holy. We thank you certainly for those moments on retreats or in Holy Mass where there was breakthrough, maybe a talk, where there was a breakthrough, God. We certainly thank you for those moments, but you are in the Holy Spirit just as present to us now as you were at any of those moments. And you want us to look at our world in this very moment through that lens of your anointing. You want us to entrust our lives to you all the more in this very moment. Our spouses, our children, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, all of our circumstances, you want us to entrust them all to you who are the, of the sole provider that fills our, our need, our poverty. So we open our hearts and our minds to you in this moment and tonight, Lord, to edify not just in this moment, but give us the lens, give us the vision to see things around us purely and clearly from the vantage of heaven, from things that are above. We ask this in your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we came off of our first seven-week journey in our our, uh, lit groups, and it ended last week with Mm. a beautiful, uh, very grace-filled time at Lord's University Chapel, Queen of Peace Chapel, and just profoundly blessed. Um, usually we will have a witness of one person who will, you know, kind of proclaim and testify what the Lord is doing in their, li- in their life. But this time we asked those who were present to share how they were um, uh, blessed by being in these livid groups. And I don't know about you, Greg, but I was mm. so moved. Um, it wasn't like pulling teeth, <laughs> one. No. And they weren't staged people that we had in the audience, but just a a beautiful willingness um, for many to share just what the Lord was doing, had done and was continuing Mm -hmm. to do and how he blessed with such profound grace um, that sacrifice of time and commitment. Um, I don't know, just one thing that stood out to me was, and we've heard this time and time again, but it's unique in the sense of... um, Everything is personal when it comes to the Lord, right? Mm. So just, you know, different people had expressed that some of these were friends or fellow parishioners that they thought they kind of knew or they would see all the time, but really didn't know personally. Know personally. And, um, you know, more of the acquaintance talk of the weather or the basketball or whatever surfacey things. And certainly, I'm sure sometimes a little bit deeper, but just to really experience community rooted in our Catholic faith in such a beautiful way. So just blessed by that. Mm -hmm. And the sisters, shout out to the sisters at Lourdes University and their community there um, for being so hospitable and for the priests who Mm -hmm. came to hear confession. um, Just really 
a very blessed evening. Many of the collegians coming up who'd never experienced this mm-hmm. before and just very moved, some with tears in their eyes, as we've experienced with this Ignite when they encounter Jesus in such a powerful way. I just want to share very quickly, we did receive an email from somebody who had come, and this is what he said. He said, I wanted to communicate that my experience before the Blessed Sacrament that night was a more profound, quiet, interior experience than previous such wonderful events. The beauty, the beautiful Queen of Peace window backlit by twilight inspired awareness of the truly awesome majesty of the event and the awesome above usness that is the rightful place of the king before us yet here he is so close to us the music was totally worthy the musician singers were inspiring thank you dearly for organizing the evening again giving us opportunity and encouragement in tuning our relationship with our lord and in fellowship as his children love and blessing to the mass impact team thank you and god remain with you Carrie Gibson, we can give him a shout out so he could. We love you, Carrie. You're an awesome encouragement and support to us. Um, And so this leads us to a couple things coming up. We know obviously Easter, right? We're anticipating Easter. Jesus came through the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit, it says in Luke 4. And that's the whole purpose of this. Hopefully you've been journeying well in the desert in the darkness and uh, leading us there. But So a couple commercials from Steph uh, to a couple events coming up in the next few weeks. We encourage you to dive on board. And, <laughs> and they are what? And those would be... No, we are very excited to uh, share Father David Kidd with the world. He's going to bring it. We're not kidding around. No kidding he around. He may be kidding around. This is the kid edition. Um, literally, April 5th. For the Collegians in High School edition at of Bring It. Of Bring It. So it's going to be held at 7 p.m. at Fire Pit Grill in awesome Holland. Place. Airport 2. Um, just really encouraging young adults to come and bring it, ask questions about the faith, things that you've been struggling with, things that you would, you know, you believe, but wish that you could articulate, um, in a better way or have a deeper understanding of. So we invite you to come and bring friends, bring your questions, bring it, bring it all, you know, Free it's going to be and beverages. a great opportunity and forum to just really get some good discussion going, lively conversation, um, good beverages, snacks, all those fun things. And on the 19th is the adult belief in beverages night, we call it, but it'll be the same opportunity, same venue. But with better beverages. Fire, better beverages, exactly. <laughs> All free, by the way. Yes. Um, you need to go, though, to sign up now. There's only a limited number of seats, 125, but they are going. Massimpact.us forward slash bring it. Massimpact.us forward slash bring it. By the way, where is this? It's in Holland, Ohio, the Fire Pit Grill. Who knows? God may bless us as we hope he will, and we'll do it all over the diocese. Um, if you're in driving distance, I think it'll be worth the drive, by the way. Just a great atmosphere to hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. Bring it as the venue, asking any question and learning how best to answer the big questions of our day. So parents and grandparents, I lovingly challenge you right now to get your kids and grandkids to come. You know, so often you, such frustration is expressed that mm-hmm. there aren't opportunities or I wish that someone could reach them or... This is that venue. Right. This is the answer to your prayer. So do it. Why do are it, my do kids it, going it. to Mass? Why are they living with their boyfriends and girlfriends? Why are they asking questions about same-sex marriage? And we hear the lament and we're with you, but this is the answer to the prayer. Ask them to come. It's a great venue. MassImpact.us forward slash bring it.
The Amen. second thing is the second season of Lit Groups. Um, again, how easy is this? Think of right now two or three people that you love, that you know. They're busy like you. We're all busy. Hundreds of people who did this the first season, by the way, are busy. They've got kids. they got work. they got business. They chose to make it happen, and they were blessed as a result. Season two begins uh, the week of April 8th. Week one begins the week of April 8th for seven consecutive weeks. If you can think of two or three or more, up to ten people, that you would like to grow in faith with and really get to know God more deeply and encourage one another, um, this is for you. Um, find out more at massimpact.us. You get the theme now. Massimpact.us forward slash lit groups, L-I-T groups. So with no further ado, we are going to turn to our wonderful guest. Just a little background. Um, I met Drew and his beautiful young family at St. Joan of Arc and really got to know my kids a lot uh, initially. Became a superstar with our older sons just in conversation. He's part of the youth group and helps lead it, if you will, um, he is a recent convert to the Catholic faith. He's a, I guess you'd call him professor at Toledo, teaching economics, which is, uh, he's a bright guy. He loves to present. He has a heart for Jesus. But as I said, he's a convert to the Catholic faith. And if you've heard us on the station, you know one of the key themes we speak of is Revelations 12, 11. Are we not fighting the enemy? Is he not active? Absolutely. Let's just name it. Absolutely, the enemy is active. How do we defeat him? The blood of the Lamb, which is the Mass, and the word of our testimony. And uh, we've been encouraging you to, to keep considering ways and opportunities to share testimony with those around you. So to, uh, if you will, put our word, I don't know. Money where our mouth is. Money where our mouth is, I guess. I wish there was money involved. But um, <laughs> um, we're going to ask Drew. We welcome you. And um, welcome to the Catholic faith. Actually, you're a baby Catholic, which is really awesome. But um, share with us a little bit of your backstory, Drew, how you came to really know Christ and a little bit of that background and leading into your Catholic faith and married and four beautiful kids. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, Greg and Stephanie. Appreciate uh, coming on here. Um, I would say uh, growing up, I went to a lot of uh, my family. I was always raised in the Christian church. Um, Pentecostal churches mostly, First Assembly of God. Um, my mom always instilled in me to read the Gospels, and that's always been a big uh, impact in my life. So um, I've always read the Gospels. Um, I had some, I had some, you know, sad times. I would say when I was younger, and they always gave me comfort. Mm-hmm. So growing up, I really wasn't pointed in a certain direction. My parents really just taught me the Bible, I would say. And once I saw some of the churches I was attending that weren't, I don't think, interpreting the Gospels correctly, because mm. I got that sense that the Bible is centered around the Gospels, Jesus Christ. Um, that's when I, I started to uh, do research, study. Uh, I saw that um, Catholic Bible has seven extra books. So I, I questioned my pastor. I said, hey, what's going on with this? He didn't have an answer. <laughs> Uh, he just said, uh, we just go by this because I was like, well, how do you know that's the authoritative, you know, word of God. So I did much, read a bunch of books on the Protestant perspective of them. And they, uh, some of them pretty honest about it. And then I was, uh, one of my buddies, his mom, uh, is a Catholic and years ago, and she's always told me about miracles and stuff. So I always kept that open. And, um, once I really started studying, I would say about 12, Years ago, I knew it was a true faith. Mm. I just procrastinated. <laughs> I converted two years ago. It was my second year. Mm. Um, but uh, 
I would say Catholic radio is a big part because I knew it was a truth faith, but I had the Catholic radio. I started to listen to, uh, uh, you know, everybody listens Catholic to music. Answers. But then I started, I don't want music. I just want Catholic answers. I want the Catholic radio. Um, so that really pushed me as well. So then I started attending St. Joan of Arc, and, uh, and then eventually um, I was like, i got to convert. It's got to do it. Awesome. Um, so I got, I got four kids, six, five, three, and a newborn, um, and got a wife. We've been married uh, going on. Be going on uh, eight years. Been together. We know each other for ten. Okay. Awesome. So she's a new convert. Also, a she year con- she converted last year. Okay. Awesome. So are you coming up on your two year anniversary this yeah. Easter? Okay. I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is really awesome. So um, just also in that backstory, uh, was faith and commitment to Christ always pretty pronounced in your non Catholic Christian faith, or did you experience maybe some of the challenges? You're th- they're what thirty six something like that. Thirty eight. Thirty eight. Okay. Thirty six. Right. Young. Young. Good. There you go. <laughs> So, you know, you're, whatever, um, 12 years younger than us, and your generation obviously uh, went off the rails on the crazy train, and a lot of them, and you were in schools where you experienced a lot of that going on. So just, I don't know, for a moment, how did you experience your peers, where they were at, and your pursuit of Christ? Was that a challenge for you? Did you ever find yourself doubting or questioning in the midst of that fog, if you will? How did, how did that play out for you? I've never doubt. Da- well, since I was young— we're talking about maybe 10 years old. I didn't doubt, but I had to question it and I had to think about it. I had to think about, was this made up? And then I had to, I looked into it um, a few years later. Uh, would 11 of the 12 apostles go to their deaths? Like one of them was skinned alive and poured oil on them. Is it true? There's too much evidence. So I didn't doubt. Mm. Um, I was always, uh, always a believer, always. But uh, when you become Catholic, I think you really get the full fullness of the faith. Um, right. Before, I just got a, li- a little glimpse. Like, it's what the presentation is about, uh, what I'm going to speak about later. But uh, as a uh, Pentecostal, when you go through tough times, you look out the window and you want, you want to know when Jesus is coming back, the second coming. But in the Catholic faith, you want to uh, go after those sufferings, those things that happen to you, and it's just it's just totally different looking at it mm. than uh, the churches yeah. I've been to. Yeah. So, folks, we're going to dive right into this, and I had the image with Drew when we talk about matters of faith that many Catholics are equivalent to maybe that child that is in the booster seat. And they're waiting for that proverbial spoon to come feed them. Whatever feeds them is what they'll take. No more, no less. They'll take kind of it comes out of the sky. And maybe it's the form of mass or maybe the rosary or maybe retreats once in a while. But there's something awesome that I note about many who come to the Catholic faith who are not cradle Catholics. They're going after it. They're going after truth. They're seeking it. They're passionate about it. They're researching about it. They have that core question of what is true like John Cardinal Henry Newman and many of the others who came to the Catholic faith. And so um, we're very blessed in our Catholic faith by those brothers and sisters who are on a quest for what God revealed to be true and are desiring to live it out. And Drew is, um, is certainly one of those. And he really took hold, um, among other things, this insight to the mystical body of Christ— we uh, got to talk a little bit about this yesterday, and I'm just going to let him present it. We may interact, certainly ask questions out of interest. But um, I think this is important because it was Drew's passion and insight and God's grace that moved him to, if you will, put together 
um, this presentation on our Catholic faith and understanding what God revealed. What should this result in? Well, it should result with us tonight um, in having an understanding for the basis of our beliefs. When I say beliefs, I don't just mean conceptual, oh, that's nice, I can answer it in a test. I mean belief that is demonstrative. I mean a belief that, that um, recognizes that it has something to do with the way we live and the way we look at the world around us. It is a, it is a capacity for joy in that abundant life that we're speaking of. So, Drew, I'm just going to hand it off to you. Lead us um, in the journey of your discovery here, Mystical Body of Christ. Okay. Um, doing a lot of research on the Catholic faith. Uh, I was thinking about this this past year. Uh, to do a presentation on the mystical body of Christ through the Catholic faith. Um, a lot of it made sense. I was like, oh, i got to put this together. Uh, and then as I was doing it, I remember one time I was listening to Catholic radio station, and the, uh, the gospel that day was like, I was like, that's perfect to add to it. Validation. Um, so I was, the, the point of my presentation, I got four points I just wanna, before I really go into it, is number one, Christ is truly present in his church and the Catholic church. I'm not just talking about the Eucharist. And we all know that, but it's truly present in the Catholic Church. Uh, point number two is miracles. What is the point of miracles? And when we talk about miracles, we have a generation of people growing up that's saying that the Catholic, Christianity is fake. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, so there there are miracles that science cannot explain, and I don't think too many people. I mean, I'm not a miracle chaser, but there's a reason for them. Mm-hmm. Um. Number three, the Eucharist is the heart of the church. There's too many. I think, I'm trying to think of the age group. They said young people in the Catholic Church, about 44% don't believe in the real presence in the mm-hmm. Catholic faith. So if you see the Catholic Church, uh, there's issues with it. I think it all has to do with the belief in the real presence. Um, and then number four is how do we participate in the mystical body of Christ? Mm. And that's uh, the final one. Um, so let me just do the beginning, and then uh, I don't know if you guys want to interject. Awesome. No, that's great. I'm excited. So when I was Bring growing it. up, I always heard the word mystical body of Christ. Uh, it's not found in Scripture, mm-hmm. mystical body, but every church uses it. Uh, mystical body of Christ, to me, when I was growing up, was there's a song used to like um, talk about we are his hands and feet. Mm-hmm. We're the ones supposed to be helping people. That's part of it, but there's some parts of society that are not part of the mystical body of Christ. They do that thing. So that can't be the complete part of the mystical body of Christ. Um, uh, like this when, I, when I was growing up, I've always been fascinated about this. Uh, the verse that uh, Jesus said, if you, if you welcome, I'm paraphrasing in a way, if you welcome a prophet, you get a prophet reward. If you welcome a righteous man, you get a righteous reward. But then he said, if you just give a cup of cold water to uh, one of those little ones in my name, and then he said, surely you not lose your reward. And when I was growing up, I always thought, man, it's incredible that this is how I interpret it, that Jesus says that he loves that person that in our lives could be annoying, nobody likes, uh, obnoxious, that no, the least on our list, that he's saying if we just give him, you, know, you can interpret water as mercy, mm. that he's willing, that he loves that person so much, he's willing to give up part of his kingdom because the next verse says, you won't lose your reward. He's going to give up part of his kingdom if we just help out that person, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Mm-hmm. So I don't look at, oh, well, I'm going to guess something. Man, he loves that person. That may be not part of the mystical body of Christ. and uh, An identification of that child with his very self. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I always did. So the mystical body of Christ, uh, where, where is the uh, main part of it? Um, most people agree it's when 
uh, Jesus uh, with Paul when he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he didn't say, hey, you're persecuting my followers. You're not, you're persecuting my church. You're persecuting me. So there's something profound about that. Mm-hmm. Then this is the part I remember hearing a reading and while I was trying to put this presentation together was I myself will show when he's tell, telling I, um, Ananias to, uh, because he was blind, um, will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul had to suffer, and so he was he was uh, accepting of it. Um, so that's the gist that Jesus's church is his body. At the beginning, so then when I looked at the Catholic perspective, if Jesus is truly present, if this is his church, his passion in life will supernaturally should be in the church. That we'll see things that cannot be explained. Um, so the first part of it, the mystical body of Christ through the incorruptible saints. And I was fascinated by eight years ago when I realized that there's bodies that never corrupted mm. in the Catholic Church. So when I was putting this together, the Psalms hit me, the prophecy of Christ that says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Mm-hmm. Mm. So the mystical body of Christ is truly present in this church, that Christ is showing us a miracle, a sign to us that we'll rise again. His bodies, show, they don't decay. Um, and then in my presentation, I have St. Vincent de Paul, St. Ignatius of Santhia, and St. Sylvan, uh, St. Bernadette. She was examined in uh, 1909, 1919, and 1929 by doctors assigned an affidavit that her insides were all intact, her liver... It's amazing. 50 years later. So this is a scientific thing that you can't explain. Mm-hmm. It's a little creepy and bizarre from outside the Catholic Church, and maybe even some within, who, who may be wondering, why is this happening? And, you know, why would God cause the body to be incorrupt? And you're experiencing this outside the Catholic faith. But obviously, you know, it's kind of you said, it's either, it's either Satan or it's God, yeah. right? Because it's, it's, it's scientifically unexplainable. Is that what was speaking to you? Like, maybe it's a little weird, a little different, but there's something beyond science that's happening here that can can only be attributed to a supernatural entity, God yeah, or the devil. I agree. I think uh, every miracle, like I joke around about this, every miracle should have a, uh, it's pointing at, it's a sign, a miracle is. Um, if it wasn't, you would have angels disco dancing, right? No point to it. <laughs> There'd be no point. There's um, an image. <laughs> like another another uh, miracle, like uh, uh, the Tilma, the Tilma, scientifically, they examined it. NASA examined it, that there was a heartbeat, 114 miles or uh, beats per minute, which is the uh, same speed of a baby. Mm-hmm. Mary shows that she was pregnant as mm-hmm. uh, the cloth. Um, it was a 98.1 degrees. Uh, they didn't know what the fa- what was painted on it. Right. Sign- and then on the eye that they, they um, once they, uh, Juan Diego showed it to the bishop, the people all there were all of a sudden on the eye on that cloth. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, atheists try to blow it up. Nothing happened. So right. it's truly present that you don't see this really in any other church. Um, besides, the Orthodox Church does have some incorruptible saints as well. Very but, cool. Um, so that, that's the first part. And it's not the main, but I kind of present that, that kids can look at scientifically. Wow, this is, this is amazing. There's something to the Catholic Church. The second part, the mystical body of Christ through the stigmata. All through 
his, well, uh, Paul could have had it. That's what it shows in the Bible. I bear the uh, wombs of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones who I examine is Padre Pio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, the Vatican sent do- uh, people to uh, examine him, doctors. They knew that he had wombs. Um, for people that don't know the stigmata, that's the wombs of Christ appear on people. Um, he bled a pint a day for 50 years. Uh, they, they noticed that it was a hole straight th- uh, through there, and they signed off on it. And this has happened. They didn't know if he did it. Mm. Uh, they noticed it was smooth. It smelled good. Uh, smelled like roses, I believe what they said. Mm. And then when he died, it covered up, and you came to see a scar. Mm. And his body is an incorruptible saint as well. Um, so the mystical body of Christ. Then you go to Psalms 22.16. They have pierced my hands and feet, the crucifixion. If he is truly present in the church, we would see some kind of supernatural thing in the church that represents Jesus Christ, which is a stigmata. It's a sign of his crucifixion. So when I was seeing that, I was like, man, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, there's no other point than to remind us of what he had to do. Um, there's tons of saints, St. Rita, that prayed for it, where she got a, a thorn in her uh, um, head that she bled for I don't know how many years. Um. And then I talk about the first well-known, unless it was Paul, was St. Francis of Assisi, that he, he had the stigmata. And the reason why I quote him, it's a transition into the main part of my presentation, which is, uh, I love this quote, he says, Man should tremble, the world should vibrate, all heaven should be deeply moved when the Son of God appears on the altar in the hands of the priest. you got to read that again. That's just too awesome. Man should tremble, the world should vibrate, all of heaven should be deeply moved when the Son of God appears on the altar in the hands of the priest. Mm, thank you, priests. And so, yeah, so it's a good transition. So what he, he's speaking about is the Eucharist. Is Jesus truly, 100% truly in the Eucharist? Mm. That's the difference between Protestants and Catholics, where mm. I came from. Mm. I learned about that probably 15 years ago. I didn't know that, the teaching. I was like, man. I didn't doubt it. I was like, that's interesting. So I wanted to look more into it. Um, um, so when we, when we talk about the Eucharist, what else, how else can you prove the mystical body of Christ? And I say the bread of life. Uh, from John chapter 651, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So if he is, there's going to be some sign, I think, in the church that's going to resemble of what Christ is saying here. So I found um, one, of these, uh, one of my favorite priests, I was listening to him, and he was talking about Alexandrina Maria de Costa, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, she was a person that uh, three, I think she was age of 14, three men uh, went into her house to rape her. Um, she wanted to remain pure, so she jumped off the second floor. Uh, she was paralyzed, couldn't move at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something called a victim soul in the Catholic Church that uh, are willing to accept any suffering to save people. And they receive horrible sufferings, but they, they're willing to do that to save people. So she was uh, in bed for the rest of her life. She would go to Mass crawling wow. to Mass. I heard another priest talk about her. She actually showed the passion. She would get out of bed miraculously, and she would show the passion and um, uh, she would say, like, the words of Jesus when he was, say, crucify me for them. But what's interesting about her, the last 13 years of her life, all she ate was the Eucharist, nothing else. Mm-hmm. The Vatican sent 
uh, a team of atheist doctors to examine her, to question her, to put her through uh, a lot of hard stuff during her time. They came back and said, there's no answer. She's eating nothing but the Eucharist the last 13 years. So what's the point of it? It's the bread of life. We will will live forever if we eat it. It's a sign to people. Um, So she's a, a... an amazing one. There's a lot of other saints. Uh, I, I don't remember the name, but over 20 years is all they did. Remember when I first heard about that, I was like, that makes sense. Mm. Totally made sense when I heard that. A quick note here, Drew, as you were speaking, that whole idea of a victim soul also magnifying that we here on earth are the body of Christ, that we're literally participating in Christ's once and for all suffering made present to us today. He already suffered and died, but made present to us today in his body, can participate and is called to participate in that. I love that passage in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, Paul says. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So how awesome for those of you out there right now. If you're suffering in any way, it is not without reason, it is not without purpose. And I'll get into this probably later, as we shared yesterday. But a powerful idea that any suffering we're experiencing, whether it's the big status of victim, soul, and total, or small ways relative to that, are occasions of literally participating in the suffering of Christ for the salvation of the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, uh, um, and then that's going to come up later, the last part, which is the victim, soul. And then I talk about, and this is the main part, which there's a miracle that happened, and it was up to science to identify what that was speaking to people, what it it means. So the mystical body of Christ through the Eucharist. First, I'm going to read Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of, of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. John 6, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Uh, This is the bread that came down from heaven, which the forefathers ate was man, and they died. So in 1990s, this is the best miracle. In 1996... Uh, uh, there's Eucharistic miracle in the Archdiocese uh, of uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. So I think a lot of people might have heard of this one. Uh, Padre Alejandro Pizet, I think it's pronounced. A woman found a host was on the ground and gave it to him. So what he did was he took the host, put it in distilled water, and they noticed a week later it wasn't dissolving. I think it dissolves pretty quickly mm-hmm. in distilled water, and then they would, I think, put it in the ground. I think that's the proper steps. Well, blood formed within weeks more blood formed they put it away and they noticed that all of a sudden uh it started to form uh not just blood but tissue um so our current pope uh, uh pope francis he was the bishop in that area of uh bishop bagario and he said take a photograph of it so they took a photograph of it and then what they did was there's three scientific examinations of it i'm not gonna go with the first two but the last one was, there's uh, Mike Willisey, I think his name is. He's from Australia, one of the famous journalists, um, and a lawyer. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. So they took it to the uh, uh, Professor Frederick Zugby and Associates in Columbia University, New York. 
Um, just to read real quick from him. He's an American expert in forensic medicine. He was the chief medical examiner of Rockland County. Uh, he was one of the United States' most prominent forensic experts, known for his research and books forensic medicine as well as his uh, study in the Shroud of Turin. He is the only professor scientist in the world to write a book. If someone died from heart failure, you can study it through a microscope, and he knew exactly what happened to the person, everything about him. So the scientists in South America said, you got to take it to this guy. So in 2005, they took it to him. The results, and he knew nothing about what he studied. He thought this was just They didn't tip him off at all. They They didn't tell him at all. They do that. And the uh, church typically does that. They don't want any scientists. They take, they send it to multiple ones to see what they came up with. So they came up with, it was human blood. The blood type was AB, which is uh, very important. The DNA didn't produce a genetic profile, no author. That means there's no, like, there's no father, a human father. There's no, they, they, he didn't understand why would it come up that way. Fascinating. The tissue, what formed was the myocardium left ventricle which is the human heart that formed on the Eucharist. The flesh is part of the muscle so uh, that gives the heart the beat. It's a part of the muscle that gives the blood its life throughout the body. Uh, without that, organs would die. The main organs of the body must have that. Also, he noticed the flesh is infiltrated with white blood cells. And if, if you look at white blood cells, it cannot last outside of 15 minutes outside your body. It will disappear. So he didn't understand why was a white blood cell still on that. So the best part of it, so this is the most well-known uh, forensic scientist, and this is the words he was saying back to the people that brought him this, uh, the host. This is a uh, quote. He said, the heart muscles inflamed. The heart has suffered. This is the sort of th- thing you see in patients that have been beaten severely around the chest. This person must have been very beat up. Mm-hmm. And he said, the person that had this heart must have been very wounded. They were tortured. How is it that while I was studying this sample, it was moving and beating? It was alive. The blood was alive. He says, how did you take heart from a dead man and bring it to me alive? So he's asking them that. This person was alive at, this, uh, at the time the sample was taken. So the, knowing so the theology amazing. of the Eucharist, we want to know, what does that science tell us? Mm-hmm. What's the point of it? Um, there's, I didn't add this to the presentation. There's, there's a, some call a mystic. The church hasn't ruled on it. Um, her name is Catalina in South America, where you can look it on YouTube. Um, these same people, uh, um, it was, she, Jesus told her, I'm going to get stigmata on this date. So they recorded it and you could watch it on YouTube. I'm not really bringing her up because I don't. The church hasn't ruled on her, but she could write perfect Greek and Latin without ever graduating high school. But she said this: she said the reason why Jesus and this makes so much sense. Jesus wants everybody to know that he's alive in the Eucharist. Not just that; that he suffers. We always think he suffered; he did, but he still suffers. Mm -hmm. Um, And that goes in with the divine mercy, uh, Saint Faustina. That. what non-belief is people don't trust it causing pain and suffering. Um, so is that a one-time event? I'm going to go through this pretty quick. Uh, Eucharist miracle in Lanciano, Italy in the eighth century is the first time it happening. Um, there was a monk that was doing uh, uh, mass that day. He didn't believe in the real presence. The, uh, um, the wine turned to blood and the host turned to flesh. 
1971 and also 1981, Professor Linoli, University of Siena, Italy, didn't uh, studied it. He came up with this uh, explanation or uh, results. It was human blood. The blood type was AB. The DNA didn't produce a genetic profile. There's no author. The tissue or- organ was a myocardium left ventricle of the human heart. The condition at the moment of the removal is living tissue. Exactly like Buenos Aires. Yep. And that was in the 8th century, so 1,200 years apart from the wow. one that happened in 1996. Um, okay, Mexico, 2006. They examined it. Heart tissue. Uh, myocardium. Poland, 2008. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sokolka? Sounds uh, good. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Mexico one. They also said the heart suffered. Sokolka, uh, Poland, they said myocardium, heart tissue, heart suffered. The same analysis was not from a dead person. The person was alive. Um, these are official uh, documents from the forensic scientists that sent it to the church. Uh, the, tardi- the cardiac tissue was joined to the consecrated hosts in an inseparable manner. There is no scientific explanation to this. So they said that it wasn't separate. It was part of the host. Mm. The heart was. Uh, Legnica, Poland. Christmas Day, 2013. The final judgment of the Department of Forensic Medicine states uh, from a letter from the bishop that it was the heart muscle that bore signs of distress. Um, so it's happening all over the place. So the question is, why is that happening? Uh, I think it has to do with uh, the lack of doubt. of uh, Lack of belief. Belief, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that John presence. 6, verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus is prefacing it. And I always, we always wonder, another time, another place, to talk about this. Why do Bible-believing non-Catholics come to that passage, what do they think when they hear Jesus preface it so emphatically, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life within you for a time. My body is real food and my blood is real drink. Translation, listen up, listen up. Receive me in faith and believe in me. Yep. Um, And then it goes, I love this quote, St. John Paul the Great, the Eucharist is the heart of the church. Where the Eucharist life flourishes, there the life of the church will blossom. If the church doesn't blossom, I think it's a lack of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard one of my favorite priests, he said he had an evangelical friend come to his mass, and he said, I forgot what state that was, you really believe that those people believe it's a real presence? And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, they wouldn't act the way they do mm-hmm. if they truly believe that was God. And then Father Wolf... He said, if you truly believe as God, you'd be on your face before it, mm-hmm. and, um, which I thought was very powerful. Quick note, real quickly this morning at Mass, Father Adam, I want you to share with us what he had said. Well, just the, the realization that it's not medicinal. It's not like we take drugs and they immediately act in our body, whether we're thinking of it or engaged or not. But it must, it requires of us an ascent, a humility, a, a yearning to uh, for our Savior, a passion for our Christ in receiving the sacraments, the Eucharist, to receive that grace. And, of course, he had a quote there. But that is a key idea for us Catholics, that we're approaching right, the it's Eucharist. It's not magical. You know, the Lord, in order to transform us and have the effect that he desires to have in us and through us, we have to be prepared and, and open to that transformation. How torturous, though, for any of us who are Catholics and going to Mass week after week and not experiencing that life, as it mm-hmm. says here, that flourishing life. And I think it, it, it presses us, and your presentation presses us to consider, am I approaching it in faith? And Jesus, as it says in Scripture, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to more deeply understand your very real presence that I'm going to receive into my very body. And then just to note that 
why did people follow Christ? Because of his miracles. That's why they followed him. Uh, he cured the blind. He you know, made them see the, uh, the crippled. And it was a sign for them and sign for us. Um, and then I love this miracle, or uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Like, if it, miracles aren't important, he wouldn't appear to them. He would just say, hey, I rose from the dead. It was important for him to appear to them, for them for belief. Mm-hmm. So uh, when he ro- so Simon Peter came, so that when Tim and John uh, heard that he rose from the dead, they ran to the tomb, followed him, and went, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there. So he's talking about the Shroud of Turin and, and the napkin, which is uh, the cloth that's in another part of Europe. Uh, which had been on his head, not lying with the cloth, uh, not lying with the linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. Then it says, and he saw and believed. And my little interpretation was he saw the shroud of Turin and believed to some respect. He's like, I I mean, Christ left that for us. Um, Or it wouldn't have been that important to do that. Uh, anybody knows the shroud, look it up. I don't have time to go into it. But they did examine the blood type of the shroud of Turin. It was AB, the same as the Eucharist, which is 3% of the population. Um, and then the last part. So these are all miracles pointing us to something, but it's not. The Eucharist is participation. It is. The other ones are pointing us, I believe. Now it's the mystical body of Christ through sacrifice and ransom for souls. And I think this is the most beautiful part uh, about the mystical body of Christ which you don't find really in any other church I've ever been to that has a theology of suffering. Mm -hmm. Suffering is bad in other churches. They don't like it, what I've been to. Mm -hmm. A a couple of Bible verses. For the Son of Man also came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So he's a ransom for many. We are, uh, you share Christ's sufferings, 1 Peter 4.13. If anyone wants to become my follower... Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. Now, here's the most fascinating verse, and I think you quoted this at the beginning. It says, I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Mm -hmm. So, it was complete, the crucifixion, but there's something lacking. He wants us to participate, or we'd just be perfect right now. We wouldn't... uh, have to do that. So there's a beautiful young lady. Uh, you can't find too much about her. I heard um, one of my favorite priests talk about her. Her name's Ruvan Bouvers. I think how you pronounce it in France. I, I looked it up and I tried to get it down. I don't remember how to do it. <laughs> She'll she, forgive you. She's a mystic and a victim soul, like was mentioned before. She was given the mission to make reparation for the sacrileges committed against the Blessed Sacrament. Um, I'm going to read that uh, quote. Uh, after I read this, this is what happened to her. And this is, when I heard this, I was uh, blown away. And I was like, this is the uh, participation. Um, and this is her cross, not ours. This is very tough and rough what happened to her. But this is her cross, not necessarily ours. But we may have to be called for something similar. At 24 years old, she was waiting to be accepted in the convent. Um, August 10th, 1925. So before that, Jesus visited her and said, Jesus was worried about a deranged priest, about his soul, and wanted her to go warn him about about what's going on. So on August 10th, 1925, she was ambushed and kidnapped by three men, and one was a deranged priest. Mm -hmm. They beat her. They tortured her. uh, They pushed knitting nettles through her breasts. This did horrible things. They raped her, and then they, uh, they tossed her blindfold into the empty street in Paris. This is right before the convent. So she was uh, waiting to enter religious life, and she didn't know if she was pregnant, what's going to happen to her. She didn't know what's going to happen to her vocation. So in her journal, 
uh, that she wrote, she said, after this situation that happened, she said, Jesus shows the heaviest crosses and the most humiliating. I served atrociously all parts of my body and every fibers of my heart and of my soul. And then uh, a simple, uh, I think a few paragraphs after that, a simple statement, which uh, brings home what this point is. She said, after this trial of going through this, she obtained the same, that same year the ransom of 32 souls of priests in danger. Um, that she was willing to suffer for people that, that I don't know if a lot of Catholics know that you can do that. You can ask for sufferings to save someone's soul or brothers or sisters, our friends. Uh, the, so the pain didn't go to waste. I think that's the main point. Her pain didn't go to waste through all that trauma, beating, torture, and rape. She obtained the ransom of 32 souls. And what happened that reprobate priest that raped her because she forgave him, the priest repented came back to the faith, but she paid the price for him to do that, which when I heard that, I was like, that's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, The pain didn't go to waste for her, Mm -hmm. that she was willing to accept that. Now, we're all not going to have to do that, but she had to go through that. uh, uh, She's a victim soul, and she's willing to accept Mm -hmm. that. When she was nine years old, she made a pact with Jesus. Uh, I read this on another site, and I was like, wow. She said, and she wrote this in blood. She says, I want to save many souls and to love you more than everyone. I beg you to make me a saint, a very great saint. And then she said, a martyr. She's asked us at nine years wow. old. But I want most of all to do your will. And then she signed it, your little Yvonne. Um, you know what strikes me, Drew, and this is all wonderful and profound and insightful and, and should speak to us. You know, certainly Yvonne, the story that you describe is extraordinary. This is not every person. However, the grace being poured out to her is available to everybody. I think it's important for people to know, for us to know, that when God asks us to do these, it's not apart from him, that his grace is upon them. You hear this in the story, whether it be St. Lawrence or Yvonne or any of the sufferings I've heard of good friends or people who've gone through very difficult times and have done it with a a saintly heroism. They all describe this sense of God's abiding grace with them. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, they're going through this, but it's an occasion. As we like to say, Steph, we're never closer to Christ than in our suffering. We're never closer closer to Christ in our suffering. And you think about the world today, as you said, everything about us is to diminish suffering or diminish discomfort. And that's a good thing, medicine and air conditioning and heating and all this sort of stuff that, that are great technological advances. But somewhere, is there not a risk of us in this modern age experiencing suffering which forms us, conforms us to the nature of Christ? And even the ones who don't even need to seek it out, right? Some people listening right now, they're in hospitals. They're in marriages that are really struggling. They're with their kids. But the encouragement I get from this, and any of you listening right now, to me is, I will likely never experience what Yvonne experienced or many of these martyrs, but can I get the theme? Can I get the theme that in my own experiences of difficulty, God is wanting to press in right now to say, receive this and accept this. Unite it with me. Let it be an occasion of saving your soul and those around you. Tonight, can we pray for that grace? Can we seek that grace? Can we be, instead of grumping about it, my hand in the air with difficulties or challenges, you know, can, can, we, can we receive it um, with a sense of being united in Jesus and therefore be an occasion of his grace to those around us? Literally, to navigate it gracefully. 
So uh, St. Therese, the little flower in some of her writings, speaks of a fellow sister who prayed to be a victim soul. And it is amazing. That's an incredible grace in and of itself to even ask, right, to be a victim soul. And she just has some incredible stories of her. And yet she knew that she wasn't called to do that. And what did she do? You know, she's known for her little way, you know, like doing the smallest things with the greatest of love and offering them up. You know, in particular, she had a great fondness and love for missionaries and, and priests and seminarians that she would constantly offer up her sufferings for and, you know, the little tasks. And I think um, it would do us well as a church, as families, as individuals, you know, to embrace the whole what is now considered outdated, but just or, or for a while, I should say, but just the whole offer it up. You know, like there's so much to it. It's not a cop out. It's not a (laughs) put off to deal with something. But the Lord gives us some of us huge crosses at different moments and others, small little discomforts like you were talking about, Greg, and everything in between. If we offer it up as a sacrifice for, you know, a particular soul or a particular intention gosh, you know, the grace that can flow from that to bring souls back, to help those in need. Um, I know we're approaching the end of the hour, but just we, since when our kids were real little, we would try to instill that in them. And it was always the constant offer it up, offer it up. Or think of who do you, who do you want, you know, okay, you know, this happened. Who do you want to pray for? Who do you want to offer that up for? Just to kind of get them hopefully in the mindset that they still carry with them today. But, um, and that, that's how I was raised. We were blessed by my dad always saying that and the sisters in our school. So our John Paul, who's working soundboard. Um, thank you, John Paul. Just a little lad at the time. So he was, he was a young little guy. And his um, very dear aunt, his godmother, had um, lost her father. Her father had passed away rather suddenly from a quick very battle young. with cancer. And my sister-in-law, Melanie, was very, very close to him. And so, of course, you know, very sad and grieving and cute little John Paul, who was probably kindergarten, maybe, if that. Just and, wanting to comfort yeah, her. Yeah, and just gave, went up to her and gave her the biggest hug and said, it's okay, Aunt Mel, offer it up. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was awesome. like, you know, this wow. simple little, you know, and I thought, like, my first response was, oh, you did not just say that to Aunt Mel. <laughs> and my heart broke. But then I was like, you know what? you know, out of the mouths of babes, right? Like this is so much like, right. Like take it and offer it up. And that should be a joyful thing that we're able to give. Sorry. Drew, there's some great content here. And I know we're going to have to have you back and just keep chewing on this theme. But one thing we discussed yesterday, um, which I think is a key theme in all of this. Prior to Catholicism, you were in the Pentecostal experience. We have many in charismatic experiences we have this, you know, new, I should say, renewed sense of relationship with Christ. And one might misinterpret the faith as experience the next new and great high. This is a big challenge for many of us, looking for the next great powerful experience, whether it be in the speaker or whether it be in the conference or whether it even be in mass. I want the next new great high. And you articulated to me, prior to your experience in Catholicism, a connection to suffering. You were drawn to it. You were drawn to a sense maybe of something deeper and richer that kind of has informed your own spirituality. And you've also, we've shared a little bit, you've kind of shared the sense that there really is 
uh, dare I say, a toxicity in a prosperity gospel that kind of seeps into us and diminishes our capacity to live the abundant life. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I think uh, when I first realized about the theology of suffering was I heard the story about Mother Angelica. I don't remember the disease she had, but she has some disease, and uh, she was cured from it. It was a miracle. Doctors didn't know what it was. And then she was really sad about it. And then someone asked her, why are you sad? You're, you're cured. And she said that was the one thing she felt like she could give to Jesus every day, and she felt like that. So it hit me, and you always see these people, you know, these beautiful people speaking, and, man, I wish I could do that or do this or do that. And then it hit me. I was like, man, she does, She wasn't the most attractive person, but she accomplished a lot, and she was using her suffering for that. It, it made a lot of sense to me when I start looking into it. Um, I think a lot of people don't like suffering. Uh, a lot of people ask, they try to doubt God because of it. But suffering is like the most beautiful thing, I think, that brings us to it. Mm-hmm. And that's like the, the Fatima message. She asked the three kids, are you will, willing to suffer for souls? And they, they saw how souls, what's going on with them, going to hell in the Fatima message. And they, they were absolutely, they would do anything mm-hmm. to save them. And I think that's, uh, that's true participation in the mystical body of Christ. Absolutely. You've got some words from St. Augustine. I'm kind of pushing us to the end here, but sure. uh, we're going to kick into our landing pattern in just a moment. But share with us some of the power core of this from St. Augustine. So Pope Pius XI, 1928, um, I was listening to this segment about the mystical body of Christ. This one priest was bringing up, and he quoted words of uh, Augustine here. He says, Christ suffered whatever behoved him to suffer. Now nothing is wanting of the measure of the sufferings. Therefore the sufferings were fulfilled, but in the head. There are yet remaining the sufferings of Christ in his body. This indeed our Lord Jesus himself to explain when speaking to Saul, as yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, he said, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. Clearly signifying that when persecutions are stirred up against the church, the divine head of the church is himself attacked in trouble. Rightly therefore does Christ still suffer in his mystical body, desire to have us partakers of his expiation. And this is also demanded by our intimate union with him, for since we are the body of Christ and members of member, whatever the head suffers, also the members must suffer. 